Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Centre for Independent Studies for our webinar tonight. It's a fascinating topic to me, and I'm hoping it's a fascinating topic for all of you. We're talking about superannuation, uh, and we've got a fantastic group of guests here and panellists to talk about this tonight. Um, Andrew Bragg is the Liberal Senator for New South Wales. Uh, prior to his election, he was an accountant and an author. In June of 2020, Andrew launched his latest book, Bad Egg, How to Fix Superannuation, obviously a very relevant topic for tonight. And we've got James Pollock, who is the ED for superannuation and for universal ownership from the McKell Institute in Victoria. He's a former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to several Labor ministers. And he recently wrote a piece on the problems with accessing superannuation early. Thank you and welcome, James and Andrew. G'day, Simon. I thought it would be useful for us just to start with a couple of the basic facts about superannuation before we start to get into some of the problems. Uh, anyone who's earning over $450 a month is liable to contribute 9.5% of their income to a superannuation fund. That amount is set to increase to 12% by the mid-2020s. There's concessional taxation available on those contributions of 15%, and there's an additional taxation for those on very high incomes. Uh, superannuation accounts for $2.7 trillion worth of assets, although that amount may have fallen a little bit lately as a result of COVID, but it still represents an enormous financial asset on behalf of individuals and on the country. But there are some problems with superannuation and both of my fellow panellists have their own views on this and we'd like to start and toss this over to Andrew. You've just written a book on the problems with super. Tell me why you're here and why you think we should care about superannuation. Well, thanks, Simon, and uh, good evening to everyone who's on the broadcast. And can I start by acknowledging the very good work that CIS does uh, across the board? Um, I certainly consume a lot of it, and it's a very important institution uh, for those of us in the centre right. Uh, I guess there's a couple of points I'd make at the outset, and the first point I'd make is, well, why would you write a, a little book about super in your first year in, in Parliament? And I guess my judgment was that this is one of the biggest things that we do uh, in federal parliament, a huge intervention into people's private affairs to compel them to put away almost 10% of their salary and then send it off to uh, a super fund which may or may not do a good job. So it is a very significant intervention. And as Simon said in his opening remarks, uh, it has significant implications for people, particularly low-income earners who are uh, more... Uh, more than ever, struggling to pull together a deposit for a first home. And I have to say, it's not faring too well. I mean, it's it costs more than it saves, and it costs the budget more than it saves today through to um, all projections that have been done by Treasury, uh, Grattan, uh, any, any economist. Um, I mean, basically, there's no organisation can put a case that super will ever become a net positive to the budget, which is depressing. And when you look at the last intergenerational report, I mean, the, the main driver of that is uh, that there are, you know, 70% of people on the pension today and there'll be 70% of people on the pension in 30 years. So, yes, there'll be a few more part pensioners, but it's, it's a, um, it hasn't delivered on its, on its main objective, which I would have thought, if it had been defined, would have been to reduce uh, the cost to the Commonwealth of an ageing society. 
the whole thing has been run by vested interests. Uh, I mean, effectively, Keating gave the management of the scheme to the unions and to the financial institutions, and they have been very worried about their own affairs and not so worried about the affairs of the people um, that they're supposed to be looking after. Uh, I mean, you know, $32 billion in fees uh, a year, which is just extraordinary. Um, and, you know, the Royal Commission into the banks showed that, that the retail funds were doing a bad job and the COVID crisis has exposed the industry funds as being totally, totally self-interested. Finally, uh, I mean, you know, I think it's important that when you go into public life that you're making a constructive uh, contribution. And my, uh, my attempt at being constructive is to say, look, uh, the scheme isn't, isn't working. It's, you know, I mean, I'd be interested in the other perspectives tonight, but I mean, on all the government and all the credible data from across the left and the right, um, the scheme is, is a failure. Um, but uh, I mean, I, I would prefer to see it work. I actually think the idea is good, um, but it is, it, is, it is something that has not worked particularly well. And so I think if you had an objective, if you had a target for how many people you wanted to be self-funded, um, and then in addition, if you had a target, target to cut fees in half, uh, which I think is quite achievable, uh, then you could actually be on track uh, for a, a scheme which actually does deliver vastly more self-funded retirees and therefore achieves the aim of reducing the cost of the ageing population, uh, which is currently met by Australian taxpayers. Uh, absolutely. A lot, a lot to dig into there, Andrew, and I hope to, to work our way through some of that tonight. Um, but right now, I'd like to ask James just some your thoughts on this. James from the McKell Institute. Thank you, Simon. Thank you to the CS for hosting tonight's discussion. I should add on a personal note, it's been a while, quite a while since I took part in your Liberty and Society program back in 2004, but I enjoyed that experience, met some great minds and had really engaging discussions. So tonight, I'm sure will be no different. Also want to just quickly congratulate uh, Senator Bragg on the release of his book. It's a good productive use of lockdown. I'm embarrassed to admit I haven't really match that, but uh, at least he's put a, his time to good use, so good on him. Um, I'd also like to briefly begin by acknowledging the traditional owners on the lands in which we all meet. In my case, it's the Wurundjeri people here in Victoria. Paying my respects to their elders past and present is an apt reminder of what this topic is ultimately about, respect and dignity for all elders in retirement and ultimately our own selves. So we were asked in our opening remarks to call out what we see as the main problem in super, uh, I'm going to take a slightly nuanced uh, kind of addition to Andrew's point about um, the absence of a clear objective purpose. I don't think there was necessarily that absence. Certainly, Paul Keating was quite clear in his mind that the purpose of superannuation should complement the age pension as opposed to substitute it. What is lacking, however, is po political or cross-party consensus. And I don't say that um, to... Uh, lay blame with one side or another, but more to state more of a fact of where we're at and why we've struggled to make necessarily this system work and be stable and, and, and long lasting. So if the government were mindful to pursue a consensus, then what's needed in my view is not an independent review or Royal Commission, but a long-term parliamentary inquiry whose process itself is designed by consensus. Something like this would probably be a jointly chaired process by the, by the government and opposition and take its time to work through the issues and, and, and witnesses, identifying the problems together and exploring mutually agreeable solutions that could stand the test of time. I'm not going to whinge if the government don't go down this path. At the end of the day, they're in government, it's their prerogative how they proceed. 
but just don't be disappointed if we remain trapped in the same place we have been since 1928. And if I could actually just quickly plug the senator's book, that Bayek, it is actually worth a read. And to his credit, he's upfront that it's a partisan contribution. After all, he does have a day job. And if you strip out uh, that out, along with some of the recommendations that I guess are associated with the partisanship, there are some useful insights and understanding from my perspective in the conservative uh, kind of uh, thinking and li or liberal thinking on the topic that, that give me a sense that consensus could be attainable. We know one of the key strengths of liberal economies is the private sector's capacity to, great, to uh, efficiently allocate capital. As we head into seemingly unavoidable period of competing global economic systems, we should be taking advantage, and sorry, talking about how we can take advantage and strengthen that competitive advantage of our economic system and not throwing it away because if some of us don't like trade union involvement. Them opening remarks, back to you, Simon. Fantastic. Well, there's a lot, I think, to work with in that. I want to start with, with a fairly simple question, and I note that uh, CIS friend Terry O'Brien in the comments has, has, has raised this issue in the past. Superannuation is supposed to be a long-term investment vehicle. We're talking about a 40 or 50-year investment horizon. Yet, in the last 14 years, I can't think of many years where there hasn't been one or two or a dozen reforms to the superannuation process. The rules change seemingly all the time. Why is it that we can't just leave super alone and, and let people get on with whatever the rules are at any particular time? James? Well, so this goes to my, my point about lack of consensus. And that's why I think if, you, if we actually want to get to that point where we don't have the toing and froing, where effectively either side of politics want the last word on what the setting should be, we actually need to find a way of engaging towards the, the design of that system collaboratively uh, and, you know, and through consistent, and that takes time. But if you look at how long it's taken to get to where we are and, and the way that, and this is, again, one of the things that I got out of reading Andrew's book is there's a, not a lot that's been solved on this yet. We've been talking about it for a long time. Well, surely taking a, you know, a little bit of extra time to work through patiently a process that can break down some of those barriers you know, realise that the, 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 common, the things that many people actually have in common rather than things they're fighting over, we'd probably stand a chance at resolving that. But if, if, but if we go continue on a path where it's, you know, one side of politics makes their changes in government and the other side makes their changes in government, yeah, we probably will continue to see what um, the questioner is, uh, you know, concerned about. Uh, Senator, I mean... You know, your, your party was quite critical of Labor at the last election for some of the changes around self-managed super funds, yet, you know, you're out here talking about the need to revise the schedule at which the superannuation guarantee increases. Why can't we just leave super alone? Is the system just doing okay enough that we don't need to keep changing it? Well, look, I'm very sensitive about the concerns aired by people that don't want the goalposts to shift too much, to use a Victorian... Uh, which I think is a better Victorian analogy than a New South Wales one. Um, but, I mean, I'll give you, you know, my strong personal view on this. Uh, I mean, we are so heavily invested in this scheme. We actually want it to work. Um, so I, I actually think we, there's more changes that we need, need, need to pursue. I mean, you know, I hope James is right that there are some things we could do 
uh, in a bipartisan tenor. Uh, but the reality is, I mean, $32 billion a year in fees at the moment uh, compares very unfavourably to uh, most other jurisdictions. And we are looking at, you know, Australians spending more on super than they do on energy bills. Um, you know, so, for example, we need to try and get a better market structure uh, which drives, you know, lower fees. So I think there's a very legitimate case for us to mount that there's a lot of surgery that is required for this scheme to work. Um, I, I should also say, I mean, I, look, I, I, you know, I think James made a good contribution about Keating and what he wanted to achieve. And I think he's right that Keating effectively, you know, wanted to see people have an age pension topped up by super. But I think we should be much more ambitious for the scheme. And I think we want to see middle cohorts to become self-funded. Uh, and I don't agree that there is a, a clear framework. I mean, David Murray did a financial system inquiry or conducted an inquiry for the government five years ago, which recommended that there should be an objective. Uh, both sides agree there should be an objective. But uh, again, we didn't quite get there. Senator, um, interestingly, comments come through from Sam Kennard and, and thanks for watching Sam saying that the reality is that super is a honeypot and it's too tempting for politicians not to chase. As our, re as our resident politician here, what, what would your observation be to that? Well, that's right. And one of the reasons that um, successive governments of all colours uh, have played with super in the budget um, I mean, the Rudd government did, did, did a lot of this. Uh, the Turnbull government did it. Uh, you know, other governments um, have done it and future governments will do it is because the system costs so much money um, through its tax concessions. So uh, this year alone, we're looking at $40 billion in foregone tax revenue because of the super scheme. So, you know, very expensive. Well, it depends how you measure it, though, isn't it, Senator? Because if you, if you don't measure it on a potential income tax basis, if you measure it from, say, an expenditure basis, the cost of super is something like 25% of that, isn't it? I've not seen those numbers, but effectively the Treasury give you two options on the tax expenditure statement. I think one comes in at $40 billion, the other one comes in at about $35 billion this year. So, uh, I mean, I accept the tax expenditure estimate is not the same as spending an actual dollar sign, and yeah, I understand that. But um, it is an expensive scheme. And so when governments are wanting to balance the books, um, it's an easy thing for people uh, you know, in government uh, to look at doing. Uh, but obviously there's been electoral backlash in the past where, where this, is, this has been tried. And I think it's a, it's a very unhelpful way to solve the, the fundamental problems uh, here at stake. And that's why I say we're better off trying to you know, frame it all with setting an objective, setting a target, um, rather than, than tinkering at the wrong end. It's interesting. Francine McMullen is actually making a comment about the early release, and I think that's something that I'd be interested in exploring now, particularly, James, as you've written on this. We've, we've seen uh, a fairly significant withdrawal of superannuation as a result of the COVID crisis. I mean, there's one perspective here that says this is individuals' money. They're going through a significant potential crisis here that, the, you know, a number of people have lost their jobs. There's, there's a lot of uncertainty out there. Why shouldn't they be able to, to access their superannuation to get themselves through a crisis? I mean, isn't that what savings are for? The issue there is um, when that's, if that's a situation someone's put in because there's no other government support that's available for them. 
and that and that is unfortunately the situation that some people will have found themselves in if they fall through the cracks because they're you know casual worker or if they're a you know a, a temporary migrant um, uh, you know over here um, studying and and struggling to make ends meet. But otherwise, turning, allowing people to access the superannuation earlier is effectively like turning, uh, converting the program into a form of uh, self-insurance for economic downturns, which is not what it was set up to do. But that doesn't mean we couldn't have a conversation about whether we want it to be that. But if we were to have it operate like that in an ongoing fashion, we've got to be prepared to accept the implications in terms of the lower returns it's going to have particularly for people if they, if they are grouped in with other um, people that face similar sort of risk to, um, you know, becoming unemployed in similar sorts of circumstances. Now, I know that one of the government's suggestions, well, that just means that we should have more diversified uh, superannuation funds, but it's going to be very hard for superannuation funds to merge with one another if, the, if you've got just, say, one fund that covers members in secure employment, you know, just say a public sector fund, um, how is it going to uh, uh, judge that a merger with uh, members of another fund who are in more precarious employment is in the best interest of their members? Is it going to help them in, lead to improve, uh, improved retirement outcomes? So the end result will be is you'll end up with two tiers of performance. You'll have uh, high risk or employees that are high risk in terms of their employment being in one group of funds and getting lower returns than employees in uh, the, uh, the, you know, are in stable, uh, you know, m much more secure and more stable jobs. And I don't think that's, you know, that, that's the problem that you get when you start mixing the purposes of superannuation with, and you know, having it available for a rainy day. Well, I think it's interesting you use the word purpose there. And, and I think this is a good point to, to throw it the senator, his comments in his opening remarks were that there really isn't a purpose to superannuation. I mean, obviously, Murray, the Murray Review said that the purpose of super was to supplant or supplement the age pension, um, which I think is actually two very distinct and different things. But Senator, what, given that it's your government that allowed these COVID withdrawals, what do you think the, that that says about the purpose of superannuation? What do you think the purpose of super should be? Well, I mean, the most important point here, Simon, is that I mean, this is people's money. Uh, and in many cases, uh, the people that are taking out the money now to spend on school fees or pay down debt or do other things, I mean, gambling. We've seen gambling. Not that I have an objection philosophically to people using their money for their own purpose. As uh, Anthony said in the comments, shouldn't people be free to choose where their money goes? If there was going to be a permanent early release scheme, I would prefer that it be geared towards uh, one of the CIS's pursuits, which is around first home ownership. So, I mean, first home ownership has fallen off a cliff from 30 years ago when super commenced. Um, and that's because of the boom in property prices. I mean, getting a deposit together is very hard. I mean, I've had a lot of constituents write to me, you know, for example, a 35-year-old man with 15 grand in their super and have said that if there's no access to their super for a first home, that person will never have a, a home. And so the best way to avoid poverty in retirement is to have a home. That's the, that's the way that the tax and the social security systems have been calibrated. So, I mean, I would prefer that if we were going to have a permanent release scheme, that it be geared towards home ownership, because I think for many people, I mean, having a home is, is more important than super. Um, and this is a system which we, which we see in Singapore, 
I mean, one of the reasons I really wanted to make this 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 point, and I hope it came through in the book, was it's it's good to have groups like CIS and Mikkel and Grattan come into this space and offer a view on superannuation because it is a big thing in our country, and I have a strong sense that for the first twenty five years of the scheme, it was a monopoly on policy run by the, the funds, right? And the answer to the question when you ask the funds about what they, what should happen is always more super. So I think taking a broader view about what people actually need to be successful or stable or safe in retirement, uh, it would be a, a vastly improved conversation than just um, saying people should have more super. Because, I mean, well, one of the tricks is that the, the super funds, of course, have been found out during this crisis as telling lies about uh, the the amount of money people wouldn't have in retirement if they took out early release. I mean, what, what they don't tell you is if you ha- take more super today, you get more pension tomorrow. Uh, so I think it's very mischievous the way that these super funds have, have carried on. And I think it, it has displayed once and for all uh, their craveness. Uh, that's an interesting point, Senator, though. Although, you know, from a public policy perspective, you might argue that people being less reliant on their own money and more reliant on government money isn't exactly the ideal outcome. But I do want to throw this issue of the purpose of superannuation to James, because I think it was interesting in your opening remarks. You talked a lot about the macroeconomic or the broader societal um, purposes of superannuation. Well, I mean, what's what's your view here, perhaps for, from a more individual perspective, on on how people should view their superannuation and what they should expect to get from it? Well, look, I still think ultimately it should be geared towards the uh, and measured around what it delivers for the individual. Those other effects I described are side products of a well-run system. I don't think you would want to set them as the primary objective because then. It's very hard to hold uh, funds accountable to something if it if it's seemingly more esoteric, right? So I think at the end of the day, it's essential that the that delivering for members um, is the core thing. Now, obviously, the the policy objective, as the senator talks about, is do you want something that's going to actually help take people off the age age pension? Not everyone, but enough people. That's a legitimate conversation to have. Um, the thing that I would add on that is that, you know, delaying going to 12% twice probably hasn't really helped to that. The other thing is that's something that when you think about how to achieve that in a way that is really fair from an intergenerational point of view, that is necessarily going to take a, a very long time. To, to want to even to contemplate doing that just, say, in 30 years or in one, you know, one person's lifetime is to say to them, look, you're going to not only have to cover the age pension costs of, the generation before you, but you're going to have to fully self-fund your own retirement. I just don't think that um, that we'd want to put our economy through that level of um, uh, drag on on consumption, uh, let alone any individual. So if we're going to pull off an objective like the senator has described there, it really needs to be planned over you know over a lifetime, so 70 to 100 years sort of thing. Which is why again, it really needs to be something that extends beyond partisan politics otherwise it just doesn't have a chance of of getting there um if if i can just briefly though touch on the 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 question of you know accessing for home ownership and um and those other purposes look you know again legitimate conversations to have but if we we then need to think about what are the implications 
for that initial objective of supporting retirement. And Singapore is a great example. I think um, many of your, um, you know, uh, members or um, uh, subscribers would be astonished uh, to know that Singapore's uh, contribution rates, compulsory contribution rates, are currently 37% combined of 20% from employees and 17% um, from individual, sorry, from their employers. I don't think- Helps um, to have a captive market, I suppose. Sorry? Well, they do. It helps, helps to have a captive market. I guess that's, I guess that's right. <laughs> but, but I'm not sure that's where, you know, if, you talk, if you're worried about compulsion, I'm not sure that's where people necessarily want things to go. But more importantly, it's, there's the performance question. So, yes, the senator quite rightly points out that young people can take some, certainly not all of their money out and put it towards housing. But that money sits in a, a separate account to their main retirement account which earns a lower rate of return. So it typically only gets 2.5% uh, since 1999. Over that period in Australia, pension, most pension funds have been delivering 5.9%, according to the Productivity Commission. Although it is worth pointing out that home prices have increased at 7% during that period of time. Sure, sure. But, but my, my point being there is if you wanted to get the same level of return from um, your, what you could get from 9.5% uh, contributions currently, but get the similar sorts of returns you're getting out of Singapore's more flexible system, people are gonna be needing to put in 20% contributions. So that, that's, that's the conversation that we need to have if we wanna go down that path. It's a legitimate path to go down, but it, we're gonna, it's gonna, that greater flexibility will come with it, lower returns on, on your account because you're treating it more like a bank account. I do want to get into the issue of, of what the level of compulsory contributions should be. But before that, I want to get to, to George's question, um, which is, I think, one of the important things we haven't really touched on yet tonight, which is how successful has super been at giving people a dignified retirement? Um, you know, there's been some wildly different estimates in that respect. The, the Grattan Institute, for example, is suggesting that, that super is actually delivering for the vast majority of people. There, there are other estimates that suggest that, you know, if you're a relatively well-off person, you can afford to buy your own home and also save your retirement. Super is a fantastic deal. Whereas if you are, say, for example, a gig economy worker, you're someone who transitions across a number of industries, so you, you accumulate several funds, that, that perhaps super is not working that well. H how do you guys feel that super is delivering for people in retirement? Most people are on the pension. I mean, you know, 70% of people are on the pension. There are some people that are taking a part pension. So uh, that's the system that we have. Um, now, uh, when you look at the average balances, and it's about $170,000 for a, a man who's retiring, and obviously vastly less for women, which is a significant problem. Um, I mean, that will last, that, that may last a few years. I mean, there's obviously evidence that people are paying down their mortgage when they get their super balance uh, paid into their bank account. Um, but if you look at, you know, the full age pension, um, you know, that's effectively a few years of uh, the government not paying for the full age pension, uh, which, you know, after people having saved 9% since 2002 isn't, isn't a particularly good, good return. So I think, you know, given, given the, the cost of the scheme to the taxpayer, we want to be getting a better deal. I mean, it's, it's not good enough that we've only got a projection 
to get effectively the same number of people off the pension in 2050 that we have today. So, I mean, I would like to see... I mean, it's an interesting point, right, because Peter Van Onselen wrote a piece about this in the Oz a couple of weekends ago where he said that basically people who say that the scheme should be abolished deal themselves out of the debate. I mean, it's just not viable um, or, or really credible uh, to say that a scheme which which is ostensibly designed um, to do uh, good things for the taxpayers of the future should be abolished. Um, but it'd be, it'd be like saying we're going to abolish the, the future fund. But we, we want this scheme to work. I mean, I want this scheme to work. So uh, effectively, the way that it would, would best work, according to the actuaries, um, would be to get a lot of the middle cohorts to be self-funded. And, and I'm, I'm a liberal, so I'm not, a, I'm not in favour of more compulsion. Um, I am much more in favour of incentivising the middle cohorts to become self-funded. Um, and uh, and ultimately off the pension. So you know, in in the book, I talk about one ab- adopting a, a simple objective, which is that super is to get people off the pension, and two, I, I nominate a, a figure of fifty percent. Uh, I think we should try and get at least half the population off the pension. Well, I think that's an interesting point, and I want to I want to give this to you, James. I'm interested in your broader perspective of whether or not the system is working, but. But I, I think that's a, an interesting question. So if we could theoretically get 50% of people off the pension, um, there is a significant portion of retirees that will be on the full age pension from when they retire until when they pass away. Um, estimates suggest that's anywhere from 20 to 25% of, of the population is, is you know, completely and utterly dependent on super, have no home and, and almost nothing in, in other savings or any other income. Um, should people who are likely to end up on the age pension anyway be exempt from super? Should they be able to just take their super contributions as wages if we all know, as, as the Senator points out, that none of them are going to end up independent in retirement anyway? So the question of um, people being independent in retirement, again, I think it's something that, you know, is well worth discussing and thinking about how do we plan to get there. Um, expectations around achieving it in, in 30 years would be a massive slug um, to, uh, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of taxpayers uh, and, and people right now. Um, now, if you want to look at uh, low-income earners that are going to be independent in retirement, sorry, not be independent, what's wrong with them having access to, sorry, still access to the entire pension? What is wrong with those people still being able to build and accumulate some wealth during their, um, their working life? Well, nothing's lives? wrong with it. Don't they need their income more? I mean, if, you, if you're, let's say that you're someone who's, who's, who's earning $1,000 a month, you know, you're looking at, 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 at almost no income. You're sitting well below, I think that's almost below the amount that you'd, you'd get from from Newstart alone, surely those people would be better off with that money in their pocket rather than that money in a superannuation fund. So, so this is really a, a, a crocodile tears type argument for um, people who've been struggling with low wage growth rather than actual response to how do we get wages growing again. So, you know, if I, I look at it in terms of, you know, where we're at um, with the sector right now, um, and, and sorry, in terms of where we're, where we're at with wage growth, is, the economy right now. Pre-COVID, we already had you know six, seven years of low wage growth um, without super going up. 
you know, super was cancelled and that still didn't actually make a difference to, to people's rising wages. Um, you've got basically a whole chunk of the workforce, particularly in just say retail hospitality, people without bargaining power, who are in part, who are in a situation where there's, we don't have a mechanism for, for sharing the productivity gains of the, um, of the economy uh, that the economy is getting with them. Superannuation is at least, and across the, because it will apply across the board, is a way of actually giving them a greater share of those gains um, than what they're able to get um, during, you know, what they're able to get in, under our current arrangements. Now, if people are concerned that they're not getting enough take-home pay now, it's well within our capacity to, to look at what changes we need in our industrial relationships and that, that will, in, you know, encourage the Fair Work Commission to give them a, a bigger pay rise. But we don't see the, the same people arguing for lower, uh, you know, for less super because people need it now for, for uh, higher wages for people at, um, when it comes to the Fair Work Commission's decisions at the annual wage review. Senator, what's what's your response to, to that proposition? I mean, it's worth noting that Paul Keating has both said that superannuation comes from wages and that superannuation doesn't come from wages. And I think he's insulted people who don't believe the opposite position on both occasions. Uh, what's your take on that? <laughs> well, I mean, look, the, the superannuation industry uh, would argue that superannuation is quote-unquote deferred wages. So, I mean, I'll leave the final word to them. Uh, and obviously, we're now in a pandemic, so we wanted to ensure that the cost of employment isn't inflated so that jobs can be created, uh, especially as we taper off JobKeeper over the next, um, I guess, six or eight months. So that, that is effectively the, the position that the industry itself has put. Uh, far be it for me to have a different view. I mean, it's clearly a cost of employment. Um, and as I said, I mean, this is a, the first recession in 30 years. This is the first time I've had a recession with super. Uh, so it's been illuminating to see the behaviour of the funds, I have to say. Uh, and so, uh, but let's, let's see. I mean, look, the, obviously the Treasury has conducted a significant review on this matter and has given its report to the Treasurer. So let's see what, what they say. I mean, last time I did a review for Kevin Rudd uh, and I think Ken Henry chaired it. I mean, they said that 9% was about right. I mean, the, the Labor Party um, effectively decided that they would reject the Henry recommendation and would, would raise the rate to 12%. For, for, I assume for political reasons. Um, there's certainly never been a policy case put for going to 12%, uh, which has stood up certainly to Treasury rigour. Um, and so, yeah, we are where we are on that. I, I think, you know, there's a couple of interesting points there and I do want to get to the, the rate the super should be. But before we do that... Senator, you've been quite critical, I think, of, of union-managed funds. You've been critical of the purposes for which they've used um, their members' uh, donations and, and, and um, inputs to their super fund. But it's worth noting that if you compare union funds and, and retail funds, the union funds have absolutely dominated the returns of the retail funds for a significant period of time now. So, uh, you know... I guess the question is, is the criticism of union-dominated funds, given that they appear to be the more effective model somehow, is that criticism valid? I mean, as, as uh, Sally Judson asked uh, earlier on in our question, sh should we get union, union funds and union donations out of super? Well, I mean, look, effectively, the, um, the, the, the issue I have as a policymaker is 
why would we allow a compulsory system to um, uh, where people are taking payments from that system, which is designed for people's uh, retirement savings effectively, and provide it to a you know, political outfit like a union? I just think it's wrong. Uh, and so it's very hard to nail down these payments. It's not a very transparent thing. I mean, I think we should engage in law reform to ensure that these sort of payments are clearly disclosed on annual reports and in websites. Um, but so this year alone, there's $13 million flowing from the funds into the unions, which will, will balloon to $30 million by 2030. So this is a significant uh, sum of money. Um, and these are for you know, director's fees, um, advertising, you know, sponsoring of conferences, uh, basically a huge flow of money. And the only reason we know about this is because the unions um, are registered organisations and they have to disclose returns with the AEC. So we don't know because of the funds, we know because of the returns filed by the, a filed by the AEC. And um, effectively, we've had some, some, some serious spreadsheeting done to, to present the, the data and, and aggregate it so we can tell the, the story. But it's a significant sum of money. Uh, one of the jobs I did before I was elected to Parliament was I spent some time as the acting federal director of the Liberal Party. Uh, and I can assure you that, you know, $13 million or $30 million is a lot of money in a campaign sense. And so what I think this has done is it's, it is, and this is just payments to unions. It doesn't include payments to the, the lobby groups who run all the ads. I mean, effectively, you know, you've created a system where these organisations can try and bludgeon governments to, to get their own way. Um, through the brute force of advertising uh, and whatever else. I mean, certainly in the past when there's, there's been attempts to pass legislation through the Senate before I was there uh, to improve governance and transparency, I mean, effectively the unions have, have threatened, uh, you know, people like Nick Xenophon um, to get their own way, right, and said that we'll, we'll come and, and run a big ad campaign against you if you vote for this superannuation bill. So I'm, I'm concerned about vested interests but I wouldn't want to give you the sense that I wasn't concerned about the about the private funds. I mean, I think that they have performed very poorly and they're beset with conflicts. I mean, you know, some of the funds admitted under oath that they put the, the interests of shareholders before the interests of members. So, I mean, I'm not here to run a case for any particular fund, but I think in my role uh, with the industry experience that I've had, I think it would be um, a shame if I didn't highlight some of these things. I want to throw that to you, James, with an observation from Matt Rocks. Um, there are no 100% union funds, only 50% uh, union, 50% employer, and that it's a so great... That's part of the problem because it's the IMF consensus bill. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, that Matt stole on my, you know, one of the things I was going to say in response there is the kind of conspiracy theory sort of stuff. You, you'd think unions don't do any actual work in their economy, but, uh, and all they do is... Um, campaign politically, you know, from, from those statements from, from the Senator. But I just, I think that's, you know, even Winston Churchill, you can go back to read what he's had to say both on this very topic as well as the role of unions. Um, so, you know, given this last week, we've been talking about past British Prime Ministers. I, I encourage the CS, and actually I'll post a link to some of his stuff on this, is, is actually quite an illuminating liberal uh, on, on the issue of national insurance and, and the role of trade unions. But you think, if this is such a dodgy stitch-up, why wouldn't Labor have just given unions full control rather than involving employee groups? That's one point. Second, if unions are really ruling the roost, 
you wouldn't know it from the enthusiastic, sorry, the, the enthusiastic participation of super funds in privatisation of government assets. Like they're, they are at loggerheads with one another quite often on whether, you know, that should be going on. Finally, the payments that uh, Senator Bragg uh, referred to. So, you, yeah, you've got those two categories. The first is the director's fees. So the director's fees are for union officials that sit on the fund and, and, and manage it in the best interest of, of, of members. Now, perhaps there are some circles where you'd rather that money was pocketed by the individual themselves, but the union, unions, uh, I guess, practice is that, well, no, you're there representing the union, so, that the money, so the money comes to the union. Now, I think that's not a bad arrangement, and I think it helps to build trust with, um, with their members, and that's why, one of the reasons why people do trust the industry funds. The other ones that Senator Bragg referred to were things like the advertising funds. Now, this goes back to John Howard's decision to introduce choice in super or force more choice into super. Again, not, not illegitimate, but for, for the political genius that many people think John Howard is, this has to be one of his biggest own goals. Because once you've introduced this, you've then basically created the requirement for superannuation funds to think about how they market their, and, and increase their, um, their, uh, their, you know, increase and retain their, their new members. And one of the one of the lowest cost, one of the co most cost-effective arrangements they've got available to them is to leverage the grassroots relationships and engagement that they that union organisers have with both employers and employees. So you know you can thank John Howard for that one. Senator, are you thanking John Howard for that one? It's a, um, I mean, this argument that it's the employer groups and the unions and that means it's all good is is so funny. I mean. The, um, I mean, the IR club, uh, you know, has presided over this disastrous industrial framework, which is killing, uh, you know, the country's growth prospects, um, and they're totally conflicted. I mean, basically, you know, um, in the hospitality award, you know, you have the, the union and the employer group agree that it should be host plus because they both receive significant, um, you know, payments. So it's got conflicts built into the, into the very heart of it. I mean, in the building sector, you've got... Uh, you know, the master builders and the CFMEU agreeing that it should be the fund that they, they co-own. So they're howling conflict of interest. The employee groups are just as bad as the unions. I'm, I'm not going to give any quarter there um, because they're, they're beneficiaries of the current scheme. It's just like the employee groups who benefit from the disgusting award complexity because they want to stay in business, because they want to be able to, able to explain to large and small businesses how the award works. So We've ended up in with a you know with a country with you know uh, basically 120 modern awards which are almost um, indecipherable. They're totally you know um, complex. Um, 500 pay points in the retail award, for example, and then you've got an enterprise bargaining system which has been murdered uh, by labour lawyers um, and uh, and and co. Right. So a lot of the blame for this shocking system lays with the employer groups and the unions. And I think super is a great example where you see them, you know, arguing every single day for their own interests, never able to put the national interest first. And so I think it's, it's a useful thing that, the, that our government has put the unions into this, um, this IR discussion that the Attorney General is leading. I think that's a good approach. Those are the good issues. Those are the important issues for us to, to look at uh, because we want to rehabilitate um, private investment, because that is the way that we will grow out of this crisis. But I mean, I'll, I'll be very interested to see whether they can put the national interest first. Um, so far, I mean, the statement that the, the ACT put out yesterday, 
um, about super to show that once again, um, the only thing that they can see is their own narrow self-interest. James, I guess this is as good a time to, to sort of address the, the issue of raising the guarantee rate from the current 9.5% through to 12. I mean, people have said that the only reason why you would support something like that is if you were financially benefiting from fees in the super fund. Do you support the increase and what do you think is the justification for it? Yeah, no, I, I do support the increase because ultimately it is about ensuring more people can have access to dignity in retirement. Um, the, the need for the increase becomes even more apparent when you have governments like the current one that want people to draw down on their funds when there's a, an economic downturn. That, that actually increases the need for people to both replenish it into the future um, and, um, you know, to be able to, um, you know, be in a position to have something to draw on because they're increasingly left to themselves. So it shouldn't have been that way, but once it is, you actually, the need to go, probably is, the government's really helped lay the groundwork for a case to go to 15%. And, and indeed, again, many of the models that are often held up by those that want to see greater flexibility in the numbers, often, you know, Singapore, again, is one where they slash the um, employer contribution rate by 10% uh, in, in the 80s. But they did that from a, um, from a rate of 20%. You know, so it is possible to look at those sorts of options and have super do more of the heavy lifting at it from a macroeconomic perspective. But we've got to be genuine then about what sort of contributions we want over the cycle that will lead to you know, good outcomes for, um, for, most, for most workers and that, you know, recognise that extra heavy lifting we want the system to do. Thanks for that and I uh, appreciate your contribution on that, that issue. I'm going to throw this one to the Senator. I mean, if super was such a good deal, wouldn't people want to contribute to it voluntarily? And, and if that was the case, why would we need to increase the compulsory rate? Uh, you've been quite active on this issue. Where, where do you stand? Is it nine and a half? Is it 12? Is it, is it more? Or is it less? Well, the actuaries say that you actually need to have more like 15 or 20% to be self-funded if you're a middle income earner. And that is, a, um, that is, that is something that I would personally favour making compulsory. Uh, but I do think there's a strong, a strong place for incentivising voluntary contributions I think the whole idea of having a set and forget system is not has not been so good, uh, especially when you look at the success of the or the lack of success of the scheme today and also over the the, the long run. So, um, I mean, at the end of the day, you know, the advocates of the scheme and the way that it currently is drafted don't seem to have an answer for what, how does the scheme cost more than it saves, um, and why don't we? Why aren't we able to get more people off the pension? I mean, their their solution of sort of going to twelve percent doesn't really move the dial on the number of people who will be self-funded. I mean, it will basically be the same, according to Michael Rice and Rice Warner actuaries. So, obviously, this is a big judgment for for the for the government to make in terms of what it wants to do following the retirement income review. I will be heavily guided by what the Treasury say. And last time they looked at this, as you know, uh, their view was, look, 9% um, is probably the, the best thing, especially for lower income earners, uh, because the trade-off is so significant. And, and I do want to say one more point. I mean, my party, the, the Liberal Party, has had a strong tradition for 75 years of being a champion for home ownership. And I do think that super is making home ownership much harder for people at the lower end. So... Um, that is a strong reason, I think, 
to look to embrace a more flexible system where some people could be incentivized to um, have more super frankly, but for others, frankly, the most important thing uh, would be to have a home. So I don't want to see super driving people out of having a home because the, the, they're having a much, they'll have a much higher likelihood of being in poverty in retirement. And we don't want that. It's a point that Jam Kimovich, and I apologise if I've mispronounced your name there, super is pointless if people can't own their own home. Um, I want to throw to you, James, just for a brief wrap-up, but also in relation to a specific comment from Peter. Is it a concern to the panel that the industry funds now own around 20% of the share market and are dictating social and economic policy that represents Labor policy other shareholders may not support? One of the things that we have seen recently is a desire for, on the part of some people, for superannuation to be more active shareholders, to for example, use the cloud of superannuation funds to, uh, for people to meet particular governance structures or particular equity targets. Uh, what's your view on the social and um, economic role that, that superannuation funds could hold as owners of stocks and shares and companies? Two things. One, it turns the worker into a capitalist. It turns the union into a capitalist. It means they've got a greater stake in, you know, in when they're delivering as stakeholders and engaging, when they're thinking about whether to go on strike or not, or not they've got a broader perspective than when, you know, uh, than if you just go back to a model where most, work, most of the workforce is dependent on the age pension and doesn't actually have a stake in the, um, you know, in the shareholder wealth of this nation. So that's got to be a good thing for the evolution of our capitalist economy, which is ultimately something that, you know, both sides of the, the debate, uh, you know, are you know, supportive of. The second part is then where do things go to in terms of this so-called activism? I think a lot of the fears here are, uh, are over, overstated. Sure, there are some uh, people that are agitating funds to be more activists, but the funds themselves are quite resistant to that. And if you look at where they're doing it, it is ultimately around managing risks that are going to impact financial returns. That's the approach they're taking. And it's quite a sound one. It is looking at, is, are, there practice, are there commercial practices or are there otherwise other forms of risk that if a company is not um, managing it well, is ultimately going to lead to lower returns for my shareholder base, sorry, for my member base. And that's what's leading to a form of capital that is going to be able to actually help self-regulate and avoid the need for some government regulation to, in terms of solving some, some of the problems that, yes, might be social and, and environmental, but it's solving it through private capital solving it rather than through the heavy hand of government. Sure, that's a good thing from a liberal perspective. Well, uh, thank you very much for that, James, from the McKellen's. Jim, I'm going to throw to... For Andrew for, for their sort of his final thoughts on this. And I'm going to pose that exact question that, that Brendan D uh, raised here about workers being capitalists. I mean, as the party of business, do you think it's a positive thing that the superannuation industry, if nothing else, has forced people to be part of the ownership of companies in Australia? Well, the reality is that the I mean, the, the, the organisation that goes on to the share register of the company uh, is, is the fund. It's not the individual. Uh, and effectively, that super fund or the fund manager, because it's often outsourced, will, will exercise voting rights and will hopefully be an engaged owner. 
Uh, it's not the individual uh, members of the fund. Uh, and so I guess I wanted to um, push back on that, that notion that it is creating a, a new group of capitalists. And finish on this point. I mean, one of the other reforms I would like to see would be for us to have a simple, clean, cheap and cheerful government default fund. Now, some people have said I'm a socialist, which I find humorous. But at the end of the day, the whole premise of this scheme is based on government intervention and paternalism. It only exists because of a, a, a law that Canberra passed. And so I think the best way to get to, to get fees down in a in, in a market structure where you'd still allow people to, to choose would be to have a, a simple, cheap and cheerful government default fund, as was imagined would be the case in the 1976 uh, review. So um, I think we could e easily establish that the, the Commonwealth already has you know, a retail trustee business uh, through the Commonwealth Super Corporation. We've run military schemes and we now have the investment management capability through the, the future fund. Um, so I think, look, you know, if you want to try and cut the the $32 billion of fees in half tomorrow, that's something that you could you could do and no doubt you could cut them in half. Uh, Senator, I think that is a fantastic note on which to, to leave tonight's discussion. We've had uh, James Pollock from the McKell Institute uh, praising capitalism and, and share ownership and we've had the Liberal Senator from New South Wales, Andrew Bragg, talking about the need for a socialist government fund for superannuation. I don't think anyone who joined our, our cast at six o'clock would have thought we'd finish there. Thank you so much both to our, our speakers, to James and Andrew. They've been fantastic. And thank you very much for uh, joining us in tonight's exploration of superannuation uh, for contributing so uh, thoughtfully and so uh, fantastically in our comments section. Uh, and we do very much hope to see you and our speakers again very soon. Thank you and goodbye from the Centre for Independent Studies. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Don't forget to buy the book. <laughs> See ya. For decades, the CIS has been a fiercely independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy. To be notified of our future videos, make sure you subscribe to our channel, then click the notification bell. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Check out the links on screen now to see how you can get involved.